Well, in our study through the book of Acts this fall, both in our sermon time and class time, we've come to Acts chapter 9. And if you are a person who reads Acts very much, you know exactly what the main topic of Acts chapter 9 is. We're going to read sort of past that and begin in verse 10 and sort of read the end of the story. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the Word of God, as given to us through His servant Luke. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. No, that's not what he said. He said, here am I, Lord. Uh, I don't know why they said it that way, but trust me. He said, here am I, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again And be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. May God bless the reading of his word. Coming here and listening to sermons long. I know I've mentioned it before that uh, I'm a big Beatles fan. Uh, Beatles are the music of my generation. That's who I grew up listening to, and, and I don't know, just love their music. I can remember the first time I ever heard a Beatles song and how my whole life changed in that very moment. I can remember seeing them on uh, Ed Sullivan and black and white TV. Uh, just remember all those, those events that went along. Now, for those of us who grew up, and that was kind of our music of our time, At that time, there was a big debate that went on about who your favorite Beatle was and who was the best Beatle. And the two that were the leading vote-getters were Paul and John. That's right. And there'd be big debates. Which one was the most creative? The girls debated who was the best-looking, you know, and and which was the best singer and who was the more important of the two, Paul or John. Then there was this little rebel group over here that liked Ringo. Because, you know, he had those sad puppy dog eyes, and, and he was kind of just goofy, you know. So you had some folks that, that really liked Ringo. Only some very weird people, like Brian Elliott, liked George, <laughs> okay? You know, if, you, if you ask, you know, a hundred people, who's your favorite Beatle, there'd probably be one person in that group that said George. Well, I'm kind of one of those one, too. I, I had a lot of respect for George. 
You know, he wasn't the good-looking one. He wasn't the one that wrote many of the, at least the first songs, until they finally started letting him write some songs. And he didn't sort of have that goofy personality that Ringo had. But man, could he play the guitar. He was really the best instrumentalist of the group. And so much of what he did with his guitar gave the Beatles their sound and really changed music. It's interesting how perhaps sometimes the people who are more in the background are so important. The Beatles could not have been the Beatles without George. Now, the reason I was thinking about that this week is because the story that we just read is about someone who's kind of in the background. And yet without him, all these great things that happened couldn't have happened, or at least without someone like him. Now, Acts chapter 9 is about the conversion of Saul. Anytime you mention Acts chapter 9 to anyone who's read Acts very often, you say, what's in Acts chapter 9? Oh, yeah, the conversion of Saul. Margaret Williams used to be able to tell you what was in every chapter of the Bible. Remember that? And I guarantee you, if you said, okay, Margaret, Acts 9, she would have said, conversion of Saul. Because it's the main story there. Saul is the main character in Acts chapter 9. And in fact, from this point on, he becomes the main character in the whole book of Acts. And in fact, from this point on, he becomes the main character in the rest of the New Testament. From here on out, it's going to be Paul, as Saul comes to be known. It's going to be Paul and his supporting cast of characters, those that help Paul do his work. And one of those, an important one, is Ananias. Without Ananias, Saul could not have become Paul. So I want to spend just a few moments with Ananias And the reason I want us to do this is because, face it, you and I are never going to be Paul. We just can't rise to that height. Paul was one of a kind. We are not going to be the apostle that goes throughout all the world preaching the gospel to thousands and thousands of people. We are not going to have a conversion experience, or we didn't have a conversion experience as dramatic as Saul had. We're not as brilliant as Saul. Uh, that, this guy he had his PhD, and he just he was already a brilliant man, and then you add the Holy Spirit on top of that, and wow. Here we are, 2,000 years later, still studying and puzzling over the depth of his writings. I can almost guarantee you that no one's going to be reading what you wrote 2,000 years from now. So in our spiritual aspirations of who we want to be, Paul may be a little too high for us to shoot for. But Ananias, on the other hand, we can be Ananias. And we can learn to do what it is that Ananias did. Because you see... Acts chapter 9 is not only about the conversion of Saul, it's also about a conversion of Ananias. Ananias in Acts chapter 9 goes from 
avoiding Saul to going and looking for Saul. You, you just heard that story as we read it. Ananias lives in Damascus. We know that Saul had become the leading figure among the Jewish people at that time who were trying to get this Christianity thing back under control and to basically get rid of it because they felt like it was a heresy and was going against what they had believed all their lives. They had put Saul in charge of all of that. Saul was this bright young leader among them and he was going around arresting people who claimed to be Christians. And he had gotten permission to go to Damascus, out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, really. Because, obviously, the persecution that had started in Jerusalem was just spreading this thing everywhere. And in Damascus, they heard there were a lot of these Christians. So, here goes Saul, and he's going up there, and he's going to arrest some. Ananias knew that. Ananias is going to stay home. Ananias does not want to run into Saul. So while he's home there, the same Lord who had just appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and told him that he was about to change his whole life, he appears to Ananias. And he says, I've got this guy over here staying with a man named Justice on a street that's called Straight. And I want you to go and I want you to find him. His name is Saul. Ananias goes, wait a minute. Saul? You want me to go find Saul? I'm trying to keep from Saul finding me. And the Lord says, no, 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 you don't understand. He's chosen. He's the one that I'm going to use to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Boom. I I mean, we can read past that and go, all right, Paul's going to, wow. You know, that this thing's about to really bust loose. We're not only moving this thing out of Jerusalem to Jewish people that live all over the world. We're about to take this thing to the Gentiles as well. It's going to be open to everyone. And this is the guy who's going to do it. And Ananias said, okay. So he went to Saul, found him, walked in that room, found no doubt a broken and humbled man who was blind, put his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. I guarantee you, an hour before that, he would have never said, Brother Saul. But he's been changed. He's a new man. And he puts his hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul, the same Lord that appeared to you on the road and who has changed your life has changed some stuff in me too. And he sent me here in order for you to receive your sight again and for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we read in the story, it looked like scaly stuff just started falling out of his eyes and he could see again. And he was immediately taken out and baptized. End of story. No. Beginning of story. Because you see, from that point on, at that very point of his baptism, Saul had received the mercy and the grace of God in his heart. But he needed something else. 
He needed the mercy and grace of God that's been wrapped in flesh. He needed not only to be accepted by God, he needed to be accepted by the community of God. He had just turned his back on all of his friends, on all of his family. And if he's going to survive, he needs new friends. He needs new family. And he needs not only to hear from God that he has forgiven him, he needs to feel it in the embrace of real arms of flesh. He needs to experience the mercy of God as he looks into the eyes of a brother or sister in Christ. The next Sunday, it's not written in our Bible. It's written later whenever Paul goes to Jerusalem and goes to church there for the first time, how the people reacted. I assume they reacted somewhat the same in Damascus. But the next Sunday, Ananias takes Saul to church with him. You know, and the guy gets up and says, anybody bring a visitor? I did. Saul of Tarsus. (laughs) And everybody dove under the pews, didn't they? You know, whoa! And he says, no, no, no. You don't understand. He's a brother. And he put his arm around him and said he's received the mercy and the grace of God. And there were a lot of conversions in that church that day as everyone else's heart was changed to embrace a man they had feared, to embrace a man that they felt like was causing all these problems in the church and in their lives. Saul had to have that. He had to experience the mercy of God in the faces and in the presence of others. And we need it too. You know, when we come to God and receive His mercy, we are called upon and receive the calling in our lives to become the Ananiases for all those people around us. We are called upon to wrap the grace and mercy of God in our body and to take it where it needs to be. There are people that you will encounter who will never know the grace of God unless they know it through you. Trust me. There are people that it will never sink in on that God really loves them and God has forgiven them except through your love and your mercy, and your grace. That's the way it works. And that is why all through Scripture we are told over and over and over again that if you have received the mercy of God, then wrap it up in your body and take it to someone else. And we're not talking about just going and preaching the gospel or taking them through a Bible study. Those things are good. They want to see it in your life. They want to feel it in your arms. They want to see it in your eyes that you love them. And that even though they have failed you and they have failed others, and even though they have made a mess of their lives, you still think they are worthy, significant individuals who have come to God and God has forgiven them. Now, you just turn all through Scripture. That's the message over and over. I want to just show a couple of places. One is Matthew chapter 18. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Anyone know that? Yeah, you do. Did you know that that is a parable that happened at church? If you read Matthew chapter 18, 
Look at what introduces the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's Peter asking Jesus a question. And if you read it out of the received version of New Revised Standard, it correctly in, in, uh, translates it to tell you that Peter's question is, what happens when someone at church doesn't act right? What happens when someone at church does something I don't like? What happens at church when someone commits a sin? What happens at church? What do I do about that? And Jesus tells the story of the unmerciful servant. Now, it's interesting. I'm running out of time, but it's really interesting how Jesus would take spiritual truths and wrap them into everyday experiences so that they got the point. Well, in this particular parable, I think that was really valuable for those people then. But the problem is that by wrapping it into an everyday story, it's made it kind of distant from us. So if you don't mind, I want to tell you this parable very quickly in its bare form and not wrapped up in the parable that Jesus told us. Here's the parable, that God is the king who has lots of servants. Look at around. Here we are. We are the servants of God. And amongst the servants of God, one of those servants did something awful, terrible, embarrassing, shameful. The whole church is embarrassed that that person that's a part of them did that. And God is highly offended. And God calls that member of the church before him and says, you owe such a debt, pay it. You've got to make up for this. And the guy says, how can I make up for it? I brought embarrassment and shame and hurt and pain on myself and on others. How can I ever pay it? And God says, you're right. You can't. I forgive. Okay? It's not the end of the story, is it? This man who now has received the mercy and grace of God, even though the great terrible act that he committed, he goes back to church. And someone else at the church offends him some way, says something kind of tacky, or maybe he won't look at it, or does something. And this guy will not let it go. He is so angry and so upset, and he goes and tells everyone else about how terrible this person is. He won't let it go. Even when the person comes to him and says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that about you. He still just won't let it go. He says, no, you're going to pay the price. Well, what's the result of that? Well, God calls him back in and said, I forgave you of so much, you didn't learn what you're supposed to do. I gave you mercy. You're supposed to wrap that up inside of you and take it and give it to everybody else, and you haven't done that. And because you haven't, I am reinstating the penalty for your original sin. It's right there, isn't it? You mean God would come back and, and, and after he forgave something, he'd say, no, 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 we're going to go back. And since you didn't learn your lesson, we're going to make you pay the price for your sin too. Surely he didn't mean that, did he? Well, I don't know. You, you remember when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? And we call it the Lord's Prayer. Right in the middle of that, it says, and Lord, here's what I'm praying about my sins. Forgive me my sins in the same way I forgive people when they offend me. Just watch me, Lord, and how I act when, other, when someone does something I don't like, you just act that same way toward me. You ever realize that's what you're asking, God? Forgive us our trespasses the same way we forgive people who trespass against us. Just follow my lead. 
That's what we're asking. And in fact, Jesus was so emphatic about that, after he got through with the prayer, he came back to that point. He didn't elaborate on any other thing in that prayer except the bad back. He said, you know what? He said, if you do forgive other people, if you bear the mercy of God in yourself, if you forgive other people, God will forgive you. But if you don't forgive other people, God won't forgive you. Paul later on wrote, he who experienced this mercy and grace, not only in the vision of Jesus on the road, but through the person of Ananias, he said, bear with one another, please. If anyone has a gripe against another person, forgive. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive them. This is not optional behavior. It is mandatory behavior on the part of a person who has come and experienced the grace and mercy of God. So I don't know what your spiritual aspirations are. But like I said, I I don't think you're going to make it to Paul. I don't think any of us are going to be Paul's. But each and every one of us are called upon to be an Ananias. Because each and every one of us have experienced the mercy and the grace of God. And our calling in life is to make sure that those whom we encounter realize what a gracious God we serve because they feel it in our hugs and they see it in our eyes and in our smiles. I want to close out just by saying something to two different groups of people here. One, I want to talk to those of you who right now need the mercy of God. That you are beaten down by life. You're sitting there thinking in your heart of how you've offended God and what you've done. I want to tell you, God is a merciful God. And if you come to Him with a penitent heart and you pour your heart out to Him, He will forgive. And I want to tell you something about this church. This church is gifted at bringing the mercy and grace of God and wrapping it into flesh and it being in our arms and our smiles and in our eyes. I know it is because I've experienced myself. I've experienced the grace of God through the hearts and the bodies of these people here. And you can trust that you will receive that as well. There are Ananiases among us. And to this church, I want to say, keep on. Keep on doing that and grow in it. Do it not only here at church. Be so bold as to do it in your own families. That your own families experience the grace of God through you. Do it for your friends. That others, maybe they don't realize where it came from. But just after being with you, They know that God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. When Jesus walked this earth as a human being, he was accused of being too lenient, too accepting, too gullible. That he wasn't judgmental enough, that he wasn't hard enough on other people. He was accused of just sort of embracing everyone he came across. Isn't that good company to be in? Let's stand and sing.